We're going to turn in God's Word now. Uh, this morning we're going to continue uh, our sermon series thinking about the Holy Spirit. But again, uh, like I said, as we do that, we're laying some foundational blocks as we go along the way. Uh, and as we touched on last Sunday morning, we looked at the importance of unity. Uh, and we're going to see from uh, these verses in Ephesians, we're going to look at it over two weeks. Um, we're going to look at the next part next uh, Sunday morning, God willing. And we're going to continue thinking about the importance of unity as God's people, uh, and we're going to see what that means about unity of uh, the Spirit. So that's in Ephesians chapter 4, and we're just going to read verses 1 down to verse 4 this morning. Uh, and uh, you'll find that on page about 977 of the Pew Bibles, uh, and also be on the screens uh, before you as well. So that's Ephesians chapter 4, and we're going to read verse 1 down to verse 4 together this morning. Let's listen to God's Word. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. Amen. And may God bless to us the reading of his word. Uh, this morning. So we're thinking about the importance of unity as God's people. Uh, we saw that from Psalm 133 last Sunday, uh, the importance that God places upon unity within His body, within His people. Uh, it is something that not only does God desire for us to have, we saw that from the Psalm last week, that it is, it is good it is godly, it is right that it takes place within the body of uh, Christ, but also it's pleasant. It has a benefit for those who experience unity. There is something pleasing uh, about it. There, we've all been in places, uh, and maybe even sometimes, sadly, these have been churches where unity isn't present. You can go in and you just feel that there's tension in that place. And actually, that's a, it's a negative place to be in. You can feel, you just feel uncomfortable being there. You know that if one little thing happens, the whole place could erupt into some sort of rammy or argument. But actually, unity is pleasing. That actually, where unity is present, what we have is a promise in Scripture is that there God commands His blessing of life forevermore. So unity is so important for us to strive after as a church. So let's look at Ephesians 4 and see what Paul says in these verses over this week and God willing next week about unity and how that connects to our study in the Holy Spirit. In verse 1, we see Paul speak about having this call this. We have the call again from Paul about uh, living lives that are God-honoring. You're seeing by now that actually there is a repeating pattern in the letters that Paul writes to various churches in different places that we see um, kind of the same thing about actually, guys, you should be living lives that are God-honoring. Honoring. You should be living lives that are pleasing to Him. We've seen that through the study in Galatians about the fruit of the Spirit. As God's people, there should be markers and evidence in our lives that we're connected to Him. We've thought about this a lot. 
And then what Paul says in verse 1, he says, Therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, he is, he's saying, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And in this verse, in verse 1, we have kind of what we've coined um, as two big theological words. We see it present here in verse 1 where we have this thing of justification and sanctification. Justification being that we are made right before God. There is this calling that God, God has called us to himself. That we are made right with him. We now stand before him no longer as distant lost sinners, but because of the blood of Jesus, we come before him as his children. He sees us now as his sons and as his daughters because of what Jesus has done when we put our hope and trust in him. There is this calling that God has placed on our lives. He's called us out of darkness and into light. And, and actually, Paul is kind of actually playing on this a wee bit as, as well, where he, he actually speaks about what the calling has looked like in his life. I'm a prisoner. I've walked this calling worthy. It's been in the manner that God has wanted, but this is where it's ended me up to be. I'm in chains for him. And actually, as God's people, we're not promised that this life is going to be a bed of roses. But what we do have is this hope, this anchor that keeps us grounded, that we know that ultimately what happens in this world will not take away from the glory and the hope that which is ours to come. So justification, we're made right before God. And that happens in a moment. As soon as we come before him, he no longer we have to work at that. That takes place in an instance. Justification in the blink of an eye. But then what he, he does show is the sanctification, which is another big word, which basically means about being made more holy, made more into the likeness of Jesus. That is a process. That takes time. You have to walk in a manner worthy. And as we do that, as we work out our salvation with fear and trembling, as we, um, we, we, we know we're right with God, we've come before him. He's, he now sees us. We're saved. That is good. It is amazing. Praise the Lord. But actually, he doesn't leave us like that. But actually, there is now a process that we go on that as we journey in this life, the things of the flesh fall away and the fruit of the Spirit begins to blossom. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And in this, Paul is calling them to work towards that which God is calling them to. This looks like us developing and growing in maturity as a church. That shows us that ultimately, friends, there is one in authority above us. He has called us. I think one of the most and amazing and relieving kind of truths that I've learned in life is that ultimately God is in control. God is in control. I don't understand all the time what that looks like and why things happen. But I can rest my head on the pillow at night knowing God is in control. There is one above me. There is one bigger than me. There is one better than me. And there is one at work in and through me. And actually, the way the Bible begins shows us that, doesn't it? Because 
what it says is, in the beginning, not Norman, in the beginning, God. And one of the biggest problems we have in life is that we replace that word God with my name. In the beginning, Norman. I'm now the God of my life. I do what I want. Who's to tell me how to live? But actually what we see in the Bible is that God is the one. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the beginning and the end. In the beginning, God. Not in the beginning, Norman or me or I. And what that looks like then, friends, is that we need to make sure that our theology, what we believe, isn't Norman-centered, but it's God-centered. He is at the center of it all. How we do church isn't Norman-centered, but God-centered. How I worship isn't Norman-centered, but God-centered. In the beginning, God. It's one of the most eye-opening moments for a Christian is when we realize it isn't about me. It's about him. And it's all for his glory. It's why he saved you. I mean, you benefit from it, praise the Lord. But ultimately, the Bible tells us it's for his glory. That is why he has saved you. Remember hearing once, do you know why we call it history? Because it's his story. It's all about him. It's a very healthy moment for a fellowship as well when actually we, we come off this preference that we have and we put God at the, in the middle, in the beginning of it, at the end of it. It is all about him. And friends, theology has to become practical. What we preach on a Sunday needs to be seen in the way that we live our lives, our beliefs and our behaviors. Now, why is it healthy to not be all about me? I think you'll agree that we live in a world where what we're seeing is that the increase in self-preservation or the increase in the I or the increase in self and the increase in selfishness, all these things, whatever we look in this world, that, that is what we see in the rise. We, we, we've spoken about this before. You, you, you do you. As long as you're happy, it doesn't matter. You, you know, as long as you can be happy in your life, who cares who you offend? Who cares? What, 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 what way is that to live life? Can you imagine if we all came to church this morning thinking it's going to be done my way? That's a rami. That's crazy. It doesn't work. And it sadly is seeping into the church. I've said this before. One of the, 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 the most played songs I hear at the crematorium as the families are as we're leaving is Frank Sinatra, I did it my way. And when it becomes about self, it becomes about preservation. And the idea of me, me, me is sweeping across our society. It is everywhere. And it's at the ruin of culture. It is at the ruin of society. And how does that work? Well, what's happened is that we've warped the true meaning of love. We've warped the true meaning of what love is. Paul tells us in Corinthians that love he says, love is patient, love is kind. It is not self-seeking. Actually, to love, to love means to give. To truly love means to give away. And we see the example of that in Scripture in John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that what? He gave. He gave. 
And we see the need again from Paul to write about the importance of, of unity. And it's not a surprise then that he speaks about bearing with one another in love. And what Paul is speaking about here is uh, kind of the context for the letter was this massively difficult thing for people in Paul's day to try and grasp and to get their heads around. Part of that was that you'll have heard us speak about Jews and Gentiles in the Bible. And God had, uh, we see within the Old Testament, God chooses a people, he chooses Abraham. Uh, and he, he, he chooses, he, in the Old Testament, you see him choose the Jews, that they were his people throughout the scriptures. But actually, it was never meant to just be for the Jews. That actually, God's redemption plan was always meant to be for the Gentiles as well. It was always meant to be for the world. He chose them to be a light unto the nations, to stand out and make a difference, to show those around them that there is another one, there is a better one, there is a bigger, more powerful one. His name is Yahweh. His name is God. And then what we see when Jesus comes, that actually we see, through, the, especially through the Apostle Paul, this mission go out to the Gentiles, those who weren't born as part of the, the Jews. And now what we see is that there's now people doing church together who some have been circumcised and some haven't. The Jews and the Gentiles. Some have lived their whole lives under the law. And these Gentiles, they meet with blood in it. And there's this whole thing of how do we do church together? We're so different. But what we see through the Gospels is that it was never meant to be saved by what we do, but saved by who we believe in. It's always been about faith. So we see through Hebrews where we see the list of the fathers of the faith, Abraham and Noah and all these people. Yes, they did things, but what we see through them doing was their belief, their faith in God. It is through faith that we are saved. So we've got these Jews and these Gentiles now doing church together. And we're like, how do we do this? We're so different. That's why we see this, always this chat about you need to be united in Jesus. The Gentiles are engrafted into this family that God has chosen and called through their faith in Jesus. Now you need to live together serving and worshiping Jesus as family. What does that mean for us here? Friends, there are always going to be people who come to church who aren't like you. And that is difficult Sometimes I think, imagine if we just had a church full of Norman. That would be, I wouldn't want to be the minister of that church, I'm telling you right now. There are always going to be people who come to church who aren't like you. And what we need to do is we need to figure out how we do church together. With all of our beautiful and strange and weird diversity. Perhaps this is something we struggle with as church now because we've been so used to in our day-to-day -day life, lives being made around now. What, what, what we see nowadays is that, you know, when you think about community, when I, when I think about my, my, even my parents, you know, what community looked like for them was geographical. It was about who lived around you. That, those are the people you did life with, was the people who lived around you. But now, it, unit, community is no longer kind of done by geography. It's now done by preferences and what we prefer. And, you know, you drive half an hour for a decent coffee or, or whatever it is. We now make a choice. Actually, I don't need to live life just here. I'm going to go find people who are like me. 
And again, sadly, we're seeing that uh, we're seeing that kind of seep into the church, where we're, we're actually, you know, maybe we, we we rub off against people and we struggle with them. So I'll go and find a church that suits me and my preferences better. That's not how we're called to live. And actually, what we lose is something of the beauty of church. We're actually in all of our weird, strange, and wonderful differences, there is something amazing that takes place as we come together to worship one who is bigger, better, and above us all. So no wonder the call in verse 2 is to have humility and gentleness with patience, bearing with one another in love. And and I I love this verse in verse 2. And I bet as I was preparing uh, for this morning, I'm thinking as Paul is penning this letter to the church in Ephesus, if I was a betting man, I don't bet, but if I was a betting man, I reckon he is thinking about somebody in Ephesus. He is thinking of an individual who is really awkward who, or maybe there's a situation that's been taking place, or, or perhaps as the letter's been read out in the church, everyone turns around and looks at uh, Freddie. I don't think we've got a Freddie in our church. Everyone turns around and looks at Freddie. You hearing this, Freddie? You need to be patient with us. Each one of us, guys, each one of us, ladies, we all have something unique and wonderful. And what we see with church is this amazing place where we can gather together as people made in the image of God. Each one of us different though. But this amazing opportunity to worship him in unity. And what is interesting is that culturally, that when they would have heard that word humility... That word humility in their day was a slave-like quality. It was a slave-like quality. This is hard stuff. This is hard stuff to, not only to preach, it's hard to enact. The people in those days, not too dissimilar from our day and age, they would have applauded and they would have looked to and they would have aspired to be people who kind of were that kind of bravado and having everything together and self-assured people who looked like they had it all together and, you know, you know the people when they walk in the room and, you know, their, t- their ties is this and blah, blah, blah. That, that kind of way where they, they, they hold themselves above and better than everyone else, that was what was applauded in their day and age, not too dissimilar from our days. But Paul here says, actually, you shouldn't be looking to be self-assured. You should be looking to be a people who are humble. A slave-like quality. But what he does is he couples this with gentleness, or rather meekness. And meekness in our kind of day and age and gentleness, we, what we maybe think of is, is weakness or someone being soft. But actually what this word means is having strength under control. Humility with strength under control. Humility with meekness. It's like knowing and being assured of who you are in Christ. Having that strength under control, knowing that ultimately it doesn't matter what anyone thinks about me. I know what my father thinks about me. I know what God says about me. But also having that humility, that soft approach, not being overbearing. So for there to be unity, because this is what he's speaking about here, for there to be unity present within the church, there needs to be humility. 
There needs to be gentleness. And there needs to be patience, bearing with one another in love. And if I'm honest, I think this is where most churches fall. I think this is the one of the things that most churches struggle with the most. And what this word patience means, and I love this. I didn't know this until this week. What this word patience means here is being long-tempered. Long-tempered. Now, for me, as someone I've shared before, who growing up, I had such a short temper. It was a really short fuse. I told you my friends used to call me Mr. T, not because of the, the jewelry I wore, but Mr. Temper. That was what they called me. The call in the Gospels, though, from the Scriptures, is to be people who are long-tempered. And again, he couples this with loving one another, bearing with one another, sticking. Even when you don't want to be with them, you stick in there loving them. That's hard. And I know what happens in church when we speak about this. We go straight away to that person who we struggle with the most. How in the world can I bear with them? How in the world am I meant to love them? I don't even like them. This is what spiritual maturity looks like though. Loving each other. And friends, how can we love each other if we don't even know each other's names? That's why we're increasing the amount of time we spend together as a church through food and coffee and all these things. It's not just for a good jolly. It's so that community, so that unity can increase here. And churches will never achieve biblical unity unless we start treating church as not a one-day event in a week, but a life. This is about life. This is about family. This is about sticking and growing together in love. This isn't about putting up with one another until we get to heaven and hoping, I hope I'm on the other side. I hope my mansion's on the other side of the road from them. It's about bearing with one another and sticking with each other in love. And what do we see from this, friends? Well, we see that unity doesn't come from the external structures that we need to get right here. And often that is what we try and work on, right? We need to increase unity here. What will we do? We'll, we'll sort of cutting it out. We'll increase the coffee time in the morning. We'll, we'll start having food together on a Sunday evening. And we, we start looking at the structures and the practical things that we have. But actually what we see here is that Paul doesn't say, right, for unity to take place, guys, you need to start going out twice a month for a curry together. Start having a longer coffee time on a Sunday morning. Women, go and have a tea and... <laughs> I don't know. I don't want to get in trouble. But you, know, you know what I mean, though? It's not about the external structures. What we see here is that it is internal. It's internal stuff that we need to fix. It's internal stuff that we need to get right. It's internal stuff that we need to grow on in our gentleness and our humility and our love for each other. It's internal attributes. So often we think that the biggest problem with churches are the programs that we run and the structures that we have. And yes, sometimes we need to fix them and, and sort them and shape them and, and reimagine them. But actually, so often we're looking so, so far out there that we forget actually, maybe it's us. Maybe it's me. Maybe God, you need to change my heart. 
We could have all the Corinites in the world and it would not build godly community or unity in this place. Unless we start sorting out the character stuff that the Bible points to. God, give me a humble heart. Help me to love those I struggle with. Help me to bear with them. Help me to be long-tempered when there's people saying things and it's annoying me and I could just bite their head off. God, give me a soft tongue. Help me love them even then. And maybe that's what we need to begin to look at is our own hearts. You know, friends, the Bible should be a mirror that we stand against. And I said that's the process of sanctification. It doesn't happen straight away. It is a lifelong process and a lifelong journey. We stand against the scriptures. We stand against God's word. And we should use it as a mirror. And actually, do I look like that? Can I see myself in it? If not, God, shape me, change me. For friends, we are meant to be different. We're not meant to all be the same. And that is amazing. But that means that in this place, we've got people who look different, who sound different, who react different, who like different things. We have different tastes. We have different hobbies. We have different pastimes. We have different gifts. We have different talents. We have musical people. We have crafty people. We have technical people. We have arty people. We have people who like to read. We have people who don't like to read. We have people who are good with numbers. We have people who aren't good with numbers. We have people who, who are good at remembering things. We have people like me who forget things all the time and I have to take notes to remind myself. And that's okay. Why? Because each one of us have been fearfully and wonderfully made. And what unity in the Spirit does is allow all these amazing and unique talents and people to gather together in one place and flourish under the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. But for that to work, we need all humility, we need all gentleness. We need to be long-tempered. And we need to love each other well. And just as we finish this morning, what we see in verse 3 is that there aren't silos in the Christian faith. There aren't silos. That actually God is doing one thing, and we're going to touch more on this next week, and that is the binding truth for our unity here, is that God is doing one thing. We aren't united because we have the same interests. It's not to do with gender or age. It's not even because of our giftings. Our unity is found in a person and his name is Jesus. And friends, there is only one bride. There's only one bride. And if you're in Christ this morning, you're a part of the bride of Jesus there are no only children in the kingdom of God. We're family. And yes, at times we'll disagree. Yes, at times we things that we think that should be done differently or done better or changed or whatever. But at all times, we are to love each other well. We're going to sing our concluding item of praise in a minute. And as we do, I've never even really noticed this until I was preparing this week. 
And it's really what grace does in, in us as God's people. We're going to sing the amazing hymn, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. And the amazing thing about grace is, friends, that it doesn't keep me looking at myself as an individual. How does that hymn finish? When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. Amazing grace, it finds me in my sin, in my lostness, but the amazing thing about the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ is that he saves me as an individual, but he saves me into a family. And grace leads us to stand together and say, when we've been there, from I to we, from me to we, that is what grace does when it takes root in our hearts. It takes it from me and it shapes it and moves it to we. So let's stand together and sing Amazing Grace together. Is it possible for us to sing that last verse once more, just a cappella maybe? You, know, you can start us off and then we can just sing it together.
And may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship, presence, and power of the Holy Spirit be with us all now and forevermore. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.